Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the only place to hear cutting-edge climate tech founders pitch their businesses in real time and on a podcast. I'm Nick Van Osdal. Let's jump in. When you think about the real estate market, climate might not be the first thing that comes to mind. Perhaps you think about your parents' house, how expensive homes have become in your region, or what mortgage rates are doing alongside inflation. For Owen Wolcock, however, climate is very much front of mind when he thinks about real estate. His fund, Climate Core Capital, is built on investing in real estate in a way that considers climate change and climate tech. Climate Core Capital thinks real estate investors are woefully underprepared for what climate change will mean for where people live, work, and retire. They focus on allocating capital to markets that will still be inhabitable in 50 plus years, and ones in which policymakers and citizens alike take resilience measures, such as how buildings are built, seriously. In this episode of the Keep Cool Show, Owen and I go deep on the theses that underpin Climate Core Capital's investments, what data they process to arrive at those, and how they go about modeling out what attractive, resilient real estate opportunities look like. More broadly, we also talk about how real estate investors and the global financial system need to reevaluate their mental model of real estate as a safe investment. From there, we'll dig into how climate already affects homeowners and real estate markets. In one of the more illuminating pieces of the conversation, Owen distills how things like flood insurance in the U.S. are already drastically changing because of climate, with rates increasing 5 to 10x recently in some areas. Finally, if you're looking for actionable insights, you can expect to learn more about which towns in the U.S. are going to grow significantly and why. Hint, if you've never considered living in Ann Arbor, Michigan before, perhaps now's the time to give it a look. All right, Owen, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Pleasure to be here, Nick. Thank you. So you're up to something uniquely interesting on the kind of call it climate and investing front from all of the people that I've talked to over the course of the past year. Why don't you get our listeners up to speed with kind of the elevator pitch of Climate Core Capital? Yeah, Nick. So Climate Core is focused on this question of how real estate investors are exposed and underprepared for a changing climate. We're really interested in the places that people live, work and retire and how that's going to change as the climate changes. Once you've taken the time to examine climate change to the depth we have, you really can't unsee the implications for cities and the built environment. And so the firm started building out a range of investment theses off a data set I started in academia at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. And then we've since built on that, honed it in a commercial context and really developed a range of strategies for large and small investors that we think paints a really compelling picture of where people will leave and where they will move. Mm, Understood. And to dive kind of perhaps straight into the deep end, I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about perhaps even that initial data set that you started developing when you were at Harvard, what are some of the kind of key inputs? Because I think that'll help inform or that'll help clarify the type of investment strategies that you're putting together. Yeah, it's probably worth working through each step of the problem and then getting to climate core and the data set as the response, albeit a very modest one. So the way I'd set it up for the audience is really in three parts. There's a way things in real estate have always worked there's a problem. And there's two problems, in fact, and there's a lot of different ways our financial markets and communities are going to respond. So as you'll hear me say a lot, this is fundamentally a problem of mental models. And real estate has had a very robust mental model for really centuries that buying land and real estate assets is the first foray for investing really for millions of people. It has intuitive uses. 
pretty relative stable lending conditions. You have transaction precedents going back centuries. And another way to say that is you can really clearly explain real estate. You can get credit to participate and you are well protected by the law when you do transact. So governments really have capitalized on those fundamentals. The fact that land was scarce, that it typically retained value, that when it was located near density and economic need, people tended to see upside. And so we've encouraged large sections of the upper, middle and upper working class to really use the residential housing market as an intergenerational wealth vehicle. In fact, many people probably listening to this podcast will have had some advantage in life, be it funds for medical coverage, college tuition, extra money for holidays as a family growing up, or sometimes even a small inheritance that started their own financial journey. And some of that has been made possible through a home that was owned in their family and rose in value. So to take that even a step further back, the 1940 median house price in America was just under (laughs) $3,000. In 2020, it was $284,000. And today it's nearly $450,000. Wow. So we're talking a nine to tenfold increase after adjusting for inflation. So for those that got on the property ladder, and that's sadly not everyone, it's not an equal journey in any country, but certainly in the US, it's been an incredible wealth creation story, especially for the middle class. And so because of those points of stability, What started in residential moved into commercial, and we're now talking about $35 trillion in the US residential real estate market and $15 trillion in the commercial market. So a $15 trillion economy all up. And so the mental model to now has been real estate is stable, it's secure, it's got long run historical patterns of capital appreciation. And because of the globally interconnected economy, really everybody's financially invested in the success of property all around the world because of the way pensions work, the way all sorts of insurers choose to reinvest their dividends. And so all of these ideas were well understood by me from a background I had in real estate and then a prior life as a diplomat in the Australian government working on climate agreements. The dots started to join and I wondered, well, what does all of this mean for a changing climate? And before we even got to climate there, we've talked about the fact that real estate is pretty attractive for its stability. We're all connected to it. And the headline story is pretty positive. But behind the scenes, there is this expansion and growth instinct that underpins all of that. And growth is really hard to sustain. So every location is in a pretty daily struggle to attract jobs and people and investment. And, you know, when the music stops, as it did in the Rust Belt in the middle of the 20th century, you saw job losses, foreclosures, divestment, and some pretty vicious consequences. And then you think about Margaret Atwood's famous quote, it's not climate change, it's everything change. Mm. And you start to think, okay, well, if everything is fixed in the built environment and we have this new phenomena that is leading to greater frequency and intensity of disruption and you have such a finely balanced system, the question starts to be what kind of disruption is needed in such a fragile system? So it became clear to Raj and I that there was a lot of complacency in real estate A lot of realities about urban investment were not really understood in the public and a lot of climate risks that financial markets didn't know how to price were starting to become understood in the data. And so how we got to the data set was trying to have a pretty robust defensible argument as to what that initial noise looked like and how that story might unfold. So very briefly on the data set, it's in simplest terms, imagine two brains, risk and readiness. So If we have the right brain being what is the climate risk, what is the science telling us, we don't ever really touch that. We've built in, you know, about eight to ten different publicly available data sets, a couple of other commercial ones, 
And that's telling us a fairly compelling story over the next mortgage cycle, 2020 to 2050, as to what physical location-based climate risk might mean in the 280 cities in America above 100,000 people. That's well understood. And perhaps we can talk later about the data arms race that's going on, I think, for a lot of large investors there, because a lot of that information is now increasingly available, particularly for free. The thing we tried to work on that was different was the other half of the brain, which was readiness. So readiness for us is this idea that there are some markets, irrespective of what their risk is, that can be prepared for their own unique risks on their own unique timescales. So you can have a low risk, high readiness market. And a question we often get asked in a first meeting with investors is, if I was to allocate a dollar to the very best market in your data set in America, what would it be? (laughs) The lowest risk, highest readiness market for us is Ann Arbor, Michigan. Interesting. But if you invert the question and you say, what is the highest risk, lowest readiness market? In our data set, it's Naples, Florida. Now, if you hear Ann Arbor and Naples, there's something fairly intuitive for an American audience when those two locations come up. You can understand why they sit at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The real story for us, because it's a $50 trillion value at risk economy, is the 278 markets in between. Right. And so when you start to curve that out and see risk and readiness on um, different levels, the idea then starts to be, well, you can participate in a big climate short. You can try and look at all sorts of different ways to develop investment strategies around the high risk section of that curve. For us, though, we thought both the more interesting and the more morally compelling idea was to participate in a big climate long. So could you be long only participants in trying to build out the capital that moves to low risk, high readiness parts of the country? And would be delighted to talk about some of that in more detail. But Great. Yeah, no, there was a lot of really fantastic detail in that. One thing I wanted to just quickly double tap on that I think is super important is kind of how you mentioned that markets aren't across the board, you know, whether it be real estate or other financial markets, they're not doing a good job of pricing climate risk. And it's almost staggering how quickly that can become evident after the fact. It's like I was having a conversation probably a couple of weeks ago with someone who's building kind of more of a D2C sustainable and climate investment product. And he noted that if you look at like the US coal index, publicly traded companies a decade ago, you know, to now, they've traded down 99%. So it's like clearly you could have priced that precipitous decline into the prices much earlier. But for whatever reason, like people have this aha moment far too late. And then the next place that I'd love to dig in a little deeper is, you know, what does readiness actually mean? If we think about Ann Arbor, I can totally appreciate why from a climate perspective, that might still be an attractive place to live in 30 years compared to perhaps, say, coastal Florida that'll be underwater. But what constitutes readiness, both from, you know, perhaps a tech or even a policy perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. This is probably a good opportunity to think about the definitions because a lot of really smart people use them in different settings. And I can totally understand how different audiences might from time to time feel confused. So I'll set out our stall now. It's very easy to conflate sustainability, resilience and readiness when many aspects of them overlap. So we define sustainability as the creative approaches any city can take to address energy conservation and efficiency, transportation, land use, water use, building standards, and really any other economic and social goals that benefit community building. We define resilience as the ability to resist, absorb, accommodate, and recover from hazard. So readiness as an idea for us, the best visual I could give is 
readiness is almost like an umbrella which sustainability and resilience shelter under. So for us, a real estate market with high readiness is accepting that there are risks and they are investing preemptively to address them. And those preemptive investments could really be anything in sustainability or resilience. But for Climate Corps to consider something sustainable, it really has to be operational. It has to be something that is already in the works that we can collect information on it. For something to exhibit resilience, it really needs to be measurable. So we have a very common scourge in our discourse where you'll hear a lot of elected officials, especially at the local level, say, we are now resilient, having recovered from something. Well, resilience isn't really a steady state, uh, sorry, a single state event. It's not something that you kind of get to the top of the hill and put the flag in. (laughs) So climate readiness for us is, of course, subject to change over time and the readiness of any city can adjust. Uh, In fact, readiness probably adjusts more than the risk because the climate risk, the science is fairly well understood. But multiple simulations of the data set effectively showed that there is a top quartile of cities on the readiness scale Mm -hmm. that have moved early to understand their vulnerability and build technical competence locally. So they're effectively incorporating adaptation into placemaking and urban development. They're attracting public-private investment as a result. And that is almost creating a feedback loop where the higher a building mandate goes, the more every general contractor has to learn to build to that standard. The more the technical competency builds, the more comfortable they are having a greater proportion of the built environment built to that level. So as capital transfers to lower risk settings, we believe that these markets that moved early are going to see that far-sightedness rewarded in multiples or in real estate language, cap rate compression. Because The early mover advantage that comes, particularly when some of the higher readiness markets didn't have that much risk relative to the rest of the country, as investors who have to put a lot of capital to work and deploy with geographic diversity in big, big tickets, that is going to be something that becomes more and more attractive. And I think a a plain English subtext of what I'm saying there is places like Ann Arbor and Madison, Wisconsin that do very well for us in the data sets, these are still only places of about 150,000 people. And if you're asking, you know, what an overarching aspiration of Climate Corps would be, I think realistically a lot of American cities that are small now have to become bigger and places like that where there are already very high levels relative to the nationwide average, very high levels of thinking around sustainability, resilience, and then this idea of readiness sitting over the top of that. I think it's why some of those markets are places that we're quite bullish on. Understood. So, you know, I'm sitting in kind of close to San Francisco right now. And one thing that kind of popped into my mind as you were talking about readiness is perhaps an example. I'm not exactly sure when the legislation will be or when it's meant to take full effect. But San Francisco, for instance, recently passed policy that all new commercial buildings over a certain size in the future would have to have kind of an internal water reuse system as opposed to purely relying on kind of centralized waste management. Is that an example of something that would feed into kind of the data that you all are looking at and potentially up San Francisco's overall readiness score? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think that would be a good description. And I think to extend it just from water, you could have backup power operability. But I'm also conscious, let me give you an anecdote. So Mm -hmm. uh, Perkins and Will, the architecture firm, I heard a story from them about a hospital in Corpus Christi in Texas. Uh, brand new hospital, really large investment in the tens of millions. And the design team sat around at the beginning and said, could we create the first ever hospital in North America to be able to operate during a Category 5 hurricane? 
And so they started to then build out all of the different technical specs that such an audacious question <laughs> would you know, require to be answered. And they went pretty far. They came up with some fantastic facade materials for the building envelope. They had this sort of runway that enabled ambulances to be sheltered. They had a kitchen size that would enable fridges to operate for 72 hours without extra food being delivered. And they're about six weeks into this process. And then someone in the environmental and waste consulting group said, will the toilets flush? <laughs> and the, the whole room kind of went silent. And then they thought about it. They went back and checked. And actually, the Texas waste management systems by local edicts will actually switch off. The wastewater treatments plants will literally switch off when a Category 3 hurricane is declared. So by just one single point of failure in that higher category threshold, they then had to bring everything down to make it a category three hurricane resistant building. And to me, that goes to this challenge of how it's very easy to overcapitalize buildings. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to start out with very green intentions, but to have the detail bring you unstuck. Right. And so for those reasons, I very much laud what San Francisco is doing. I think the density, uh, the water challenges of California, it's really required it would still be quite a long time before San Francisco was somewhere that we would recommend our investors deploy. Just because the level of risk that you are dealing with on so many other measurements means that it is going to take them a long time to develop the level of readiness required to compete with, say, some of the other parts of the country that might be offering similar returns and similar cap rates, but not the same level of risk. I kind of wanted to take that as a moment to step back and say, at your core, places that feature in the top quartile of that readiness, and then also the bottom quartile as far as climate risk is concerned. Yeah, and I think that this all might still feel like the timescales are confused, and I've talked about science from 2020 to 2050 when real estate holds are much shorter periods. So maybe a simple way to give a clear example is the city of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So it's a northern latitudes market, it settled in large number by the Scandinavians in the early 19th century. It's now an economy larger than New Zealand in GDP terms. The immediate prompt, though, for every investor in America is the Twin Cities are a cold place. <laughs> so a simple litmus test of that is that, you know, how many days did it record above 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius? Mm -hmm. The reason that's such an important line is, you know, for context, the National Weather Service advises that sunstroke and heat cramps and all sorts of heat exhaustion becomes possible at that temperature with meaningful physical activity. And, you know, heat stress is a really serious situation when the body's temperature rises rapidly, sweating mechanism fails, the body is unable to cool down. So you're probably thinking, why is he talking about the Twin Cities in, in the context of heat stroke? Well, if you lived in the Twin Cities from 1970 to the year 2000, the period we generally refer to as the 0.5 degree world. Heat risk wasn't really a problem. That's why it has the reputation it does. They experienced four days on average above 95 degrees. In a warmer year, Minneapolis-St. Paul saw maybe as many as 12 days. But in a cooler year, hot weather like that simply didn't happen. A warm year in a two degrees world would see 24 days in any given year above 95 degrees Fahrenheit in Minnesota's capital, Wow, which is nearly a whole month. And it's a big difference. But in Houston to the south, a two degree rise above pre-industrial levels would mean 104 days a year in those conditions. So that's nearly a third of the year. So when you 
combined temperature with relative humidity to calculate the heat index or the heat that a human will feel on any given day, Houston actually passes the historical climate of Death Valley, California, sometime in the middle of this decade. So that probably will have shocked people, so I will repeat it. A research collaboration that we did between the climate data firm RISC, the Harvard Graduate School of Design and Climate Corps, effectively found there is no difference between the number of 95-degree days in Death Valley recorded from 1981 to 2010 and what a person in Houston will experience in the middle of this decade. So if you step back and you're a real estate investor, you have to ask, am I picking a date where I think Houston stops being an inbound migration market? Am I waiting for, you know, some breakthrough in the news on global climate negotiations? I think that kind of thinking is very understandable as a first impulse, but it misunderstands the problem. It is not possible to predict when those kinds of conditions will become too much for a meaningful portion of households and firms in Houston. But the cap rates for Class A stabilised multifamily housing in Houston and Minneapolis are near identical, even though their climate fortunes are vastly different. Mm. So the proposition we're giving to investors is we're not arguing that Houston is doomed or destined to depopulate entirely. We're simply saying that the features of that market irrevocably change if it's too hot to be productive outside one in every three days of the year. And there is no premium right now to sell the multifamily building that you own in Houston and buy an identical asset in Minneapolis-St. Paul. So by thinking of the challenge in terms of capital transfer away from risk and minimising your beta, so minimising your volatility, I think this starts to be, you know, less a complicated thing about technology and timescales. A simpler way to think about it is that right now the market does not understand the enormity of the disruption to come. And there is an opportunity to assemble portfolios in low risk, high readiness markets that generate the exact same returns as the Sunbelt markets that people have been pouring capital into for the last decade. Right. And so you and I, you know, we don't want to live in this world where entire areas like Houston become unlivable. I mean, we're already seeing it this year, unfortunately, in major swaths of India and Pakistan. I'd like to dig in a little bit on kind of the impact question. So I can definitely appreciate the financial calculus of why your investment strategy could well work. But I'd like to hear, you know, how you think about this capital allocation mechanism driving impact. Yeah, I think you've intimated a large part of this. So the realization that came for Raj and I very early on was the longer communities live in harm's way, without adapting or relocating, the more it's going to cost all of us. A simple example of that is the total capitalized value of New Orleans the morning of Hurricane Katrina was $25 billion. The total federal outlay to pay for the cost of reconstruction recovery was $53 billion. I remember having a conversation with Ed Golding, uh, used to be the head of the FHA, Federal Housing Administration. He shared those numbers with me And he said, Owen, it would probably be a rational conclusion for an investor to reach that the government is probably going to bail out climate risk. Mm. And I remember having a follow-up conversation with Raj about that. And his retort to me was, yes, but when was the last time you saw an institutional grade deal in New Orleans? We're still talking about a city that has never recovered to its pre-Katrina population levels. It still has, you know, enormous poverty challenges, Swiss cheese neighborhoods where houses had to be demolished and have just never been rebuilt because... The economics 
just don't work. And so I think about examples like Katrina, the big sort of visual hurricane issues. That's one part of the spectrum. But honestly, just as concerning as disaster hazards are slow onset hazards. So sea level rise, heat stress, drought. The idea that people have believed in the momentum of, you know, relocating to the southern latitudes, bigger cities on the rise, new jobs, the warm weather and all the amenities and, and lifestyle that that offers. For us to have, you know, really large sections of the population moving into that orthodoxy of thinking without realizing that there are these huge place-based features that are about to change in each of these locations. I think I think morally, if you've delved into the data, you've seen how big the disruption that climate change is going to bring to some of these large population centers, it's incumbent on us to be a part of transferring capital to lower risk locations and then building assets of superior design along the way in those places. I think those two efforts together is a really high net impact pursuit. And, you know, we're intending to educate as we learn ourselves along the way. But you're absolutely right that there has to be a realisation that the longer we wait, Mm. the harder the conversations are going to have to be. And the more unfair the financial system will be in recognising the risk and giving people a chance to recover. Yeah. That's definitely compelling. I think development and capital can be a good catalyst. You know, you're almost a Sherpa for kind of potentially teaching folks, starting with folks like myself, how to think differently about preparing, you know, investing and where we live. That's a question that I'll consider in the next five to 10 years at some point is, you know, potentially buying a house somewhere, probably not in the Bay Area, just given the prices alone and some of the information that you're telling me now. But Yeah, I'm interested to maybe dig in even a little deeper on beyond moving capital, if there's kind of education that you'll do in the future. I know that there's a decent amount of alpha that you want to protect for your investors and to drive returns with your strategies, but that could be an interesting thing to talk about. And I think you also at the end touched on another piece that I'm interested to maybe just hear your perspective on, which is, it seems like some of the people that are going to get hurt the most, and we're certainly seeing this in the developing world, are people that already have the least means to relocate or change their situation. And so I guess part of the answer on how you mitigate that is that it has to come from, you know, a city, for instance, spending money on building homes that are accessible to folks like that and are ready and resilient. But that'd be another topic that I'd potentially like to dig into a little bit. Yeah. Well, on the second question, I think a really interesting area to explore, which you know, maybe a climate tech audience is not that familiar with is FEMA risk rating 2.0. This is a big deal. It's been happening over the last 12 to 15 months in a public setting. And it's really the most significant update to flood insurance pricing in decades. So insurance is seldom top of mind for firms and households, but it drives decisions in credit markets and the cost and availability of credit drives the economy. A very long mispriced insurance product in the United States is flood insurance. So the old FEMA map system was very simplistic by design. It relied heavily on one thing, the calculation of a statistically derived 1% annual flood event. So the prices really ignored small frequent floods and catastrophic non-zero probability floods. Mm -hmm. It ignored major rainfall events in urban areas that tend to cause a lot of flooding. And it also ignored changes in erosion and subsidence. Climate change has actually made each of those trends I just mentioned more common. So what FEMA tried to do with this risk rating 2.0 initiative was provide more individualized assessments of flood risk. 
So new calculations would start to include your distance to a flooding source, building occupancy, construction, foundation type, drainage, height of the first floor, and so on. In April of this year, rates began to rise for existing flood insurance customers. And there's a trigger in the system that effectively says the federal law won't allow rates to go up more than 18% a year. Sure. But there's actually a much darker, more uncomfortable story going on there, which is that in many parts of the country, there is a thing called the special hazard flood area. And this is a part of the nation. There's, uh, you know, 6 million homes within um, these SFHAs where the flood risk is so great, it is a requirement of your mortgage that you have taken out a flood insurance product. Sure. I'm aware of some really astute kind of uh, hedge funds and different people on the big climate short side of this picture who've been doing a lot of digging around this question and have actually found that there's a lot of people who they don't hold flood insurance after the first year of the mortgage and the banks and the lenders have not been strict on ensuring that that is the case. And so if we want to imagine, let's just take a hypothetical valley in Idaho, maybe to the west of Boise, low socioeconomic levels, average house prices, maybe $140,000 a year. Oh, sorry, $140,000. These are areas where there's not an inbound migration story. The only reason that houses are transacting is because people who've always lived there are deciding to own or buy. In these locations, there is now a lot of people who didn't have their mandatory flood insurance and are learning that the prices have jumped sometimes 5 and 10x because the 18% cap was only going to be for people who had an existing policy. Understood, yeah. What happens when you have a 5 to 10x jump in your insurance is that that is a bigger jump than your rent or the amount that you could get as a return on the asset. And that immediately erodes your terminal value. Now, if you are someone who had not kept on top of your flood insurance, or you've all of a sudden, because of this new assessment of risk, got a flood insurance requirement that didn't exist in the past, you really only have a couple of choices. You either run the gauntlet of living in the home uninsured, hoping that the flood doesn't come, or you look to sell. But when you look to sell, the new purchaser is only aware of what your revised FEMA flood insurance rates are. And so they will adjust their bid price down according to that new OPEX line item. And so you are immediately having a lowering of the value of your home. Now, in a lot of these cases, well, I mean, across America, the average net worth is about two thirds tied up in the family home, but in lower socioeconomic levels, that can be even higher. And so when you have that through an entire valley or an entire community, there's really no other word to describe it other than a wealth destruction event. Right. And it's very hard to imagine how some of those communities are going to recover once these new pricing mechanisms from the financial system better recognize the risk that they live in. Right. And so to answer your question, I think something like FEMA risk rating 2.0, it has excellent intentions. We have a lot of people that are not paying insurance that accurately reflects the risk of where they live. But at the same time, there are enormous equity questions because a lot of these people were not informed. They did not have the exposure that they had explained. And if they maybe don't have a mortgage or a debt-free, but are choosing to go uninsured, then they're looking at an enormous loss of intergenerational wealth if the flood eventually does come. Right. That, that's a fascinating, uh, kind of a fascinating digression. It's like FEMA's forecasts enter the 21st century, which for all intents and purposes is important, you know, we need to understand these risks. And as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, 
it'd be better to price them more accurately to the extent possible sooner rather than later. But at the same time, because of how hard or how much those forecasts previously lagged, you have this massive delta between what people might have expected when they bought a home even just three or four years ago and what the actual economic reality of owning that home and the risks associated with it were. And and just to say one more thing on insurance while we're on it, in the real estate industry since the beginning of time, when you've been doing an investment pro forma to decide whether or not to buy a building, you have put in 3% as an annual insurance increase. And that just kind of runs in the, you know, in the Excel model. I've had, you know, when I was doing research at Harvard, I had off the record discussions with large reinsurers and I asked them, what is a more realistic number in high risk, early exposure parts of the economy for what the insurance premium increase could be like? And they said probably seven to 8% annually. So some parts of the country could be looking at seven to 8% annual increases really in perpetuity, or at least until this is stabilized and better understood. Now, there's not going to be many parts of the country that have rent rise at that rate. So you are immediately talking about an erosion of your net profit, your net operating income, and that affects the terminal value of your asset. Yeah. It was like you quoted that at a, you know, three compared to seven or 8%. So it's like, you know, you're doubling the, (laughs) the normal increase every year based on what people tend to expect. And I think something that we really say in almost every first discussion with a new investor. And I think if if there was one idea I would want people to take away, it would be this, that it doesn't require the big one, doesn't require the big disaster to hit your market for the repricing to occur. It is simply the financial markets better recognizing the risk and that then being reflected in the terminal value of your asset. So that could be the cost and availability of debt. You know, there are some banks that have informally started stress testing scenarios where the most at-risk markets have their mortgages capped at 15 or 20 years instead of 30. Or even if a 30-year mortgage continues to be offered, uh, maybe there is just a far greater price on that debt for you to access it, which then is going to affect how much people are willing to pay. Insurance we've just touched on. And then, you know, really the big one is property taxes. So at the municipal level, counties and governments are only now starting to come to terms with the long-run investments they're going to have to make to protect their value at risk, the clusters of their economic drivers that effectively enable there to be a tax base in the first place. And that might be a protective barrier, seawall, sponge, oyster reef system on the edge of a downtown business district on a coastline, or it could be just simply upgrading the stormwater drainage systems which in every American city were done in the early 20th century and the diameters of those pipes were just simply not prepared for the intensity of rainfall that you now see in a lot of markets when precipitation comes. That's all got to come out of property taxes. And there are a lot of parts of this country, a place like Florida in particular, where people have relocated under the assumption that they wouldn't be moving into a low tax ecosystem. So that's a really hard conversation that's probably got to happen between the local officials and their ratepayers to effectively say that the days of you paying next to nothing in your millage rates and so forth to live here are over because we have to protect the value at risk. And if those conversations continue to be delayed, which unfortunately in a lot of locations they are because of the nature of political cycles and people not wanting to have the hard conversations, then muni bond investors are probably going to revise the ratings downward to reflect the fact that they don't believe some locations have the political will to take on and make the investments needed. Right. Yeah, that's a great call to action for listeners, you know, which I might 
at least try to summarize as the repricing that we've been talking about is already happening, probably in many cases seemingly underneath the surface, but it doesn't require a massive catastrophic event for significant potential changes in markets to happen for the next 5, 10, 20 years, I imagine. You know, there's been a lot of, I wouldn't call it doom and gloom, but we're not necessarily always painting the rosiest picture in some of these conversations we're having. What are some things that you've seen, and perhaps it's, again, on kind of communities really embracing that readiness conversation, what are some things that you've seen that make you optimistic about where some of the places that people will be able to live in 20 or 30 years are headed? This often happens. I probably come across as a fairly, you know, apocalyptic <laughs> doom and gloom sort of person. But um, Raj and I are actually, you know, pretty optimistic by nature. And I think one of the areas that we're really excited about, you know, which is probably moving in more of the tech discussion is something like the ancillary technologies and equipment that will come about as a result of the proliferation of Passive House. So, for those that are not familiar with Passive House, it was a German building standard, really a set of design principles for attaining a very rigorous level of energy efficiency in any building. And at the same time, really creating very comfortable indoor living spaces. So what actually are the principles behind something like Passive House? Having a really, really tight building envelope. So continuous insulation to help reduce a building's heating and cooling needs and improving comfort. And that can often mean eliminating thermal bridges. So thermal bridges are an idea where, you know, there's sort of cold corners where, you know, the the air can get in or out. So you minimize the risk of mold growth because that air transfer is not occurring as it might have in, say, older buildings. That air tightness really leads to a more durable building over time. It reduces sound, it reduces the infiltration of outside air, the loss of conditioned air, which then means that your heating and cooling needs for the building over time are much, much lower. So as so many people listening to this podcast will know, you know, buildings are about 40% of the carbon accounting challenge we have. A lot of that is still in really difficult areas around embodied carbon and, you know, the different scopes. But to the extent that we can build great buildings with balanced, really tight envelopes and then balanced air ventilation, so effectively these uh, HRV systems, heat recovery ventilations that are taking stale air from certain places, supplying it with fresh air, to the extent that we can build that really high quality spec, but in a low risk climate market to begin with, then you're effectively taking a part of the mitigation jigsaw and applying it to the adaptation jigsaw at the same time. And this, I think, is something that a lot of large investors that are trying to grapple with ESG and carbon mitigation in their building footprints are wrestling with is, if you have a net zero building in a wildfire ravaged area of California or, you know, Miami Beach, Florida, yes, you are contributing to the mitigation challenge or you are contributing to the carbon accounting solution, but you still have an enormous amount of location-based physical climate risk that the asset is exposed to. So if you can deploy the same capital in somewhere like Cambridge, Massachusetts, with not insignificant risk, but a very high level of readiness, excellent building codes, and a lot of the same secular growth drivers that make places like Miami good to invest in. You know, Boston has many of those as well. If you can build a passive house in Cambridge, then you've got a fantastic asset in your whole period because your OPEX is lower, and you should have a really attractive asset on exit because the market is willing to pay you for a premium to reflect the fact that you have built in low risk and you have built to the highest standard. Mm -hmm. Understood. 
Yeah, so I've got Ann Arbor and Cambridge up on my extra tabs here on Zillow, planning my future out. But um, <laughs> I guess one more question that's in the same vein of that was a really nice example of how one even goes about something like building a single building. Anything else on the federal policy or even kind of other interesting local policies front that make that encourage you and show that other folks are kind of thinking about the same things that you are and not just from a financial perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the most interesting areas is in lending conditions. So the Surfside building collapse was obviously a really terrible event and I, I mm. you know, want to speak with respect on it. And we still don't know many of the final engineer's reports that are going to assess what the cause of the collapse was. Right. In saying that, we do have a fairly preliminary but reasonably confident assessment that over time, the intensity of greater storms from the coastline brought in a lot of salt water into the lower car parks and that effectively created brackish pools that eroded the concrete and eventually created challenges for the steel uh, reinforced construction and the weight loads of how that tower was built. When the mayor of Surfside had to deal with the tragedy of the Surfside collapse, he asked his engineers to tell him how many other multifamily buildings in his city alone were at risk of the same brackish construction frailty issues, and they counted 440 multifamily buildings in Surfside alone. Man, that was staggering. So that's not something that we whack a sticker on and say is climate change, but it is definitely a new construction risk as a result of an exacerbation of weather patterns and conditions in places that we have chosen to build a lot in a certain way. Why that, I think, becomes important now is the Wall Street Journal two months ago published a story that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have now privately announced that they are no longer going to buy loans from condominium buildings where there are large deferred maintenance and repair issues. Mm -hmm. So that seems like a punitive measure, but they are operating really you know, with the federal balance sheet in a lot of ways because they're the GSEs. They hold a lot of the mortgages that a lot of us have. And in effect, what that is doing is saying, you know, you can no longer delay because the cost of inaction is always greater than the cost of action. And if the mortgage pools that Fannie and Freddie offer are just all of a sudden going to say, sorry, you have long run overdue issues that you need to get on top of. And if that means paying a special assessment to make the building safe again, sorry, you got to do it. Otherwise, there's no refinancing. There's no purchaser coming in getting a mortgage from us. I think that's an example of a really small federal action that can have enormous positive benefits because really all that's doing is what I said at the beginning. It's the financial system recognizing the risk before the events do the same. Right. So if that action ends up requiring 200 of those 440 buildings in Surfside to make the necessary engineering improvements, then that is probably a good thing. Right. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of the kind of flood insurance example you gave too, obviously that can create a very significant disruption that's very real for people in the present moment, but it also probably helps avoid even more drastic disruptions in the future. It's like, even though it's painful to not make some of those repricings presently, it's, it's still a much better idea than doing it in 10 years. Yeah. And, and one thing I'd say on that, Unfortunately, there is a large gap. All of the early work on the implications of climate change for the real estate and built environment, all of that was done in academia. You know, some fantastic faculty that I got to work with at the GSD and elsewhere, you know, whose papers I've read and had a big influence on me. 
the academic world is looking at this from many different perspectives and the financial implications is just one. There is also environmental justice, there is climate justice, there is managed retreat. All of these different disciplines that are trying to think about how this enormous disruption is going to impact communities. And I think a a realisation I had quite early on is just as it's very hard for a large pension fund to understand a concept like managed retreat, it is also very difficult for the climate justice movement to understand the kind of real day-to-day cash flow exposure challenges that CalPERS has to deal with. Um, So to the extent that we can speak about these challenges with a common language, that we can educate parties uh, coming from very different perspectives, I think that's going to be really important because otherwise it's going to become very difficult for financial markets and communities to have responses that are aligned in any way because in so many ways their incentives are so different. You've already given listeners some great calls to action. I think one you just mentioned was around there's such a wide range of stakeholders that are affected by all of these issues. The exposure and considerations of a massive fund like CalPERS, as you rightly mentioned, is so different than you know people that are living in some of these homes or working in some of these buildings that we're talking about. And trying to bridge conversations between those types of groups alone is, is a really important challenge. And then another call to action that you provided earlier was also, you know, just even if you're considering buying a home in the future, like don't just think about where you like living and hanging out and whether it's affordable, but what that's actually going to look like in 20 or 30 years. What, uh, what other calls to action would you want to make sure that people take away from this conversation? And then perhaps finally, you know, there might be some people that are potentially interested LPs. So I'd, I'd open it up to you to, to make that call as well. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. We all need to understand the risk of where we live. You know, as long as you are not operating with uncertainty, you are always in a better position. I would also, you know, if you are young or under 45, I would speak to your parents, show them the data, ask them about their insurance premiums in the last five years if you think they live in a property or have a vacation property that is in harm's way. And the reason I think that's an important thing to do is this is a public and private actor incentives challenge, but it's also a boomer to millennial wealth transfer challenge. And what I mean by that is it might sound silly, but your parents who might have relocated or retired to Florida and have a large amount of their net worth tied up in these properties, they could learn about the impacts of climate risk and simply really write down the asset as something that they are happy to enjoy. And then whatever the valuation might be when their life ends, it then is something for their children to divest from or reconsider. And I think that puts this generation in a very problematic position because the wealth destroyed, who stands to lose that is actually the generation that cares most about acting now. Right. So that I think is something that's important for not just individuals, but families to, to get their heads around that your parents or someone you love or a business you're invested in could have a large footprint in one of these markets. But, you know, in effect, your dollars are tied to the outcome of the events that unfold over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years in ways that you might not have total agency over. Yeah, I got to go talk to my dad about what the wildfire insurance on this house that I'm sitting in right now looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think the other point on LPs, yeah, if you're a large investor 
some of this has resonated, you want to either talk about rebalancing or you just want to ensure that your cash flows thrive alongside recurring climate risk, we'd be delighted to get in touch. Really, most of our LPs to this point have been family offices, emerging manager programs, some institutional investors and you know high net worth clubs that come together for certain real estate deals. So I think each of them in their own different ways, they've seen this enormous ocean current of ESG. They understand it. They see its importance, but they have noticed this very small upwelling of physical climate risk that's going on alongside the main current. And if you can understand, delve into the data, see how big the implications of this are, the rational thing to do is to set up a portfolio or an allocation with some climate risk off exposure. And that's effectively what Climate Core is trying to offer with the assets we buy. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, this has been a super eye-opening conversation for me. So A, thanks for coming on. And, and B, I'm, I'm confident that there will be folks that may want to pick your brain further or, or chat. So I'll make sure to, to broker those interests. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. And don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever else you listen to podcasts.